the words we'll be looking at, and I'll be putting them up on the screen, but the whole tone of Scripture, and we get to be shaped by, and sometimes corrected by, and that stings, uh, the words of God. Our natural disposition is to live according to our own words and our own way of thinking, and when we do come to God's words, uh, sometimes that's hard to hear. So we're preaching through the book of Acts. We've decided to tie the two. It's a beautiful thing that a baby is making noise today. Just trust me on that, and and you'll agree in in a half hour when I'm done. Um, We've decided to link back-to-back the two most intense sermons that I may have to preach this year uh, to just just do them together. So this is part two. Last week we looked at the, the sin of racism, and we talked how Jesus' gospel sets us free from that by moving us toward the other. And today we're going to talk about the sin of abortion and how Jesus' gospel sets us free from that by moving us toward babies, moving us toward babies. Um, I know as soon as I say that word, some of us in this room have been involved with abortions personally, either as fathers who have um, gotten a girl, friend, pregnant, and counseled her toward an abortion, or daughters who have uh, mothers who have conceived a child and not brought that child to term. And so there's... uh, seriousness in the room as soon as I say that word. So I want to make sure you know that we love you and we're for you and God is gracious and God heals even as we mature in Christ. Um, And I want you to take that spirit into hearing the words that I have for you today. And I also want to praise God. He's so gracious. I I can't explain how gracious the Father is to me, but it's a big part of this sermon making sense. So just let me give you two insights. These are not in my manuscript. But last week I preached on the sin of racism, um, ethnocentrism. And uh, that day, into this room walked a dozen folks of different races than mine to sit and be in the room as we preached on the glory of God and making us one people in Christ. So gracious to me. I've known for about six months that we're preaching through this text of Scripture. You cannot come to this text of Scripture in our day and not preach on this reality. And a couple of months ago, I was at a basketball game, and I ran into a friend of mine's younger sister who got pregnant as a teenager, and everyone's counsel to her was, you have to get rid of that baby. You're not ready. Um, Just go get an abortion. And she didn't do it. And that day, for a half hour in the stands, I watched her son play ball and celebrated the grace of God in providing for her, making a very difficult decision. And it just breathed air into me to say, that's right, these aren't just words. The living God in Christ does the kind of thing we're going to talk about today. So this is very serious. Um, And I do ask that you'd work all the way through the whole thing with me, um, because it takes some time to build uh, what we're trying to make the point of from Scripture. Okay. With that intro in mind, hear the words again with me, and now you'll be like, oh, okay, I got it, Cruz, and then we'll pray. As the time of promise drew near, which God granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who didn't know Joseph. 
He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would conform our minds to the truth of Scripture, to the words that you've spoken, that you would set us free from our fear, especially today, that the truth that is in these words and in the gospel for us would make so much sense and become so beautiful and, and begin to drive us toward loving babies in the life of this church and this city. You have, in your mysterious wisdom, ordained for sinners to preach, and I am totally unqualified to do this, but you are not, and so I pray that the words and the tone and the love and the power of Christ would come through the preaching of his word as you promised that it would. We, we need that or we are wasting our time, so I pray that you would be gracious to us in it. Hear my prayer. And answer. Amen. All right, let's do this. If you could somehow take a Bible and read the whole thing from beginning to end in one sitting and keep the storyline in your head, uh, one of the many notes that you would jot down is this God, Father, Son, Spirit, God loves babies. Right up at the very front of the book, he looks into the eyes of the first man and the first woman and the first marriage, and joyfully, exuberantly, what does the Lord say? Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. My translation is, make lots of love and have lots of babies, right there at the beginning of the book. All throughout older and new covenant history, you see, you hear God making promises to parents about their children. I will be with your offspring. I will be with your sons. I will be with your daughters. I love them more than you love them. You have no idea how much I love the children of my children. Then at the very height of the story, you would not miss the fact That when God comes to fulfill his promises and to redeem us from our sin and accomplish the work of redemption, he comes as as a baby, conceived in a womb, pushed through a birth canal. I'm talking about all blue and screaming and wet and and helpless and dependent. You know the story, and they laid him in a manger, and they wrapped him in cloths, and they just looked at this baby boy. Is there any way for God to have fused more meaning 
and weight and honor and value into the conception and the carrying and the delivery and the birth and the nurture and the receiving and the loving of babies than that he sent Christ through Mary. There's, there's no way he could have made that more clear for us. So beautiful. So anyone in your Bible who loves God with all of their heart and mind and soul loves babies. You would see that to be true. That's a note that you would take down. But that's not the only note that you would take. You would also note this, that those in the story who do not love God and specifically do not trust God to provide, do not trust in his gracious provision, several times in this story you see them leading a massive killing of babies. So we see this first in Pharaoh's slaughter of the Hebrew baby boys. That's the one we're going to look at today. Then we see this with the Canaanites sacrificing their babies on altars to their god Molech in the Older Covenant. And then we're going to look at the birth of Jesus Christ and how King Herod massacred the baby boys in Bethlehem. And finally, if you got to the end of the book, you will see the dragon waiting to slay the baby as he is born from the woman. Over and over and over again, you see that unbelief despises babies. You'd make those two notes at the end of your time in the Bible. Then you have to ask yourself the question of the culture that I live in, American Bostonian culture that we find ourselves a part of, where do we land? Which one of these sides of the story? Well, I'm a 1973 baby. You can do the math and figure out that I am now in my 40s. And just since I was born, we have aborted that many unborn baby boys and unborn baby girls in the United States of America. That's 55 million. Now, I know we don't talk about this much anymore. Um, this has become one of those realities that it just is what it is and you just don't really want to talk about it. I don't know if you've noticed that. So abortion becomes a topic of conversation around the political cycle, but it kind of fades from there, especially the way that compared to it used to 10 years or 20 years ago. It's like that sin in your life that you just go, you know what, it's who I am. I just, I'm done fighting with it. It's just going to be there, so I'm just going to give it a longevity exemption. I'm just going to tuck it away and forget that it's there. Uh, it's just a part of my life, and what are you going to do? So let's not bring it up. We are very much in danger of allowing that to happen with this reality. But we can't let that happen here. So I don't want my grandsons and granddaughters to one day click through the ministry of the word in the life of our church and be like, why did Papa Cruz and the people that started that church not talk about uh, one of the one of the evils of their day. What were they afraid of? What were they doing? Because we know that this has become an evil in our day. So we know that we are killing babies. And if you've been reading in the last five years on the change in the argument, you will see that fewer and fewer people are denying that simple fact. 
1973, when the whole Roe v. Wade thing went down, you know that we, we did not know, like we do today, what's happening in here when a, when a child is conceived and growing. Sonograms, other things, are technology that has come out since then. So we know that in uh, eight weeks, eight weeks, you can see a baby suck his thumb. And they respond to sound. And there is evidence that they are dreaming in there. And at 20 weeks, 21 weeks, a baby could be born and live almost on its own, 21 weeks. And almost all abortions that happen in the United States are taking place after that mark. Um, We can see babies at 20 weeks old recoil from pain. You know, when a mom's getting a needle, we will see the little baby slide out of the way because it just, it knows You can go online and Google it and watch 8-week, 10-week, 15-week, 20-week, 30-week-old babies. Life begins at conception, and we all know it. And the arguments that are put out today is not whether or not a life is being taken, but the value of that life compared to the other factors in the conversation. So for me, the very important question to ask is, If we know this is life and we see it in there, small, fragile, but that's life, what would move us to continue to take that life and take that life and take that life? There has to be something driving us like a blinding, white-hot pressure to not go, this has to stop today. It just has to stop. What are we doing? But, but to keep us saying, no, 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 this has to continue. It has to continue. W- what would drive a people, a nation, an individual to that place? Okay, there's lots of answers to that question, and you should think on, and can think on many of them. In one sermon, we only get to zero in on one of them. That's all I want to do today is just zero in. What would drive us to continue to have this be a reality in our homes, in our lives, in our country? That's the issue of unbelief and fear. Unbelief and fear. There is a fear that drives us to this. In other words, let me say it like this. It's no longer that we don't know that when we abort a baby, we are taking a life. We know that. It's that we rationalize away the horror and the reality of that because not taking that life scares us even more. Not taking that life scares us even more than, not, than, than taking that life. We're afraid, I can say it like this, we're afraid that if we don't take that baby's life, that baby will take our life. It will kill our prosperity. It will kill our opportunity. It will kill our flexibility. It will kill our future. If we have this baby or another baby or this unexpected baby, poverty and lack is going to overtake us. We're terrified of that. Okay, you cannot read two pages of the current abortion debate without coming across that rationale. I'll just give you one example. There was a billboard put up, a huge one in New York City by the Holland Tunnel, And it said, the most dangerous place for an African-American in America 
is inside of the womb. They were trying to convey the racist element that undergirds abortion, uh, the massive numbers of Hispanics and blacks who are not coming into this world compared to other races. Um, and there was a big fury over the thing, and there was a lot of stuff written about him. And one woman wrote these words. She said, in addition to being offended as a woman, um, so the tip-off that you're reading a postmodern author is that truth is secondary to offense. Like, you can lie to me, you can patronize me, but don't offend me. I want to live in my world without truth interfering. So offense trumps truth. Not only was I offended as a woman, but I'm offended that groups such as this one, the one that put up this banner, would deny a woman facing an unintended pregnancy the ability to make the best decision for herself and her family, and, and this is it, they would ignore the danger to black children after they are born. Then immediately she rolled into multiple paragraphs about poverty and lack and the danger of the public school systems and on and on and on. In other words, she is so afraid that the mom will lack and that the baby will lack that she has convinced herself that it is better to kill the child before it's even born, then deal with that potentiality. That's her argument. She's so certain that there is no God, and that if he is there, he will not provide for this family, that she is willing, in her case, to see hundreds of thousands of her own race not welcomed into the world. That is the kind of fear that would drive us to this reality right here. Okay, I need you to see that it is not new to the United States, that that fear is as old as Pharaoh and Egypt. That's the text that we're working through today. In this text of Scripture, a pastor brother of ours is preaching the gospel, and he is working through the story of God's grace to his people, telling us about how God remembers and loves and blesses his people. It's what he does. And he spends some time on the life of Moses. Moses was the great savior of God's people in the older covenant. You know that story. And in reminding us of God's great provision for his people and his great blessing for his people, he tells us about this horrible story of Moses' birth. And here's what he says. As the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people, God's people, increased and multiplied in Egypt. Until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. Okay. As the time of the promise drew near. What's that? God had made this promise to his people who had no homeland. I'm going to give you the sweetest homeland you can imagine. We call it the promised land. Abundant, fruitful, delightful, 
Like think of a place that you're thinking of going right now because you live in Massachusetts in January. So get the Bahamas in your head. Cancun, Grand Cayman Island. That's what the promised land would have been like for these people. I've joked with you about this before, but cows with udders this wide with the sweetest 2% milk just flowing. Honeycombs oozing, dripping with honey. A land flowing with milk and honey is what they called it. In other words, the Lord had promised, I'm going to bless you. I'm not going to forget you. I'm going to bless you. I'm God. I will give you a land. You will be provided for. That promise was on its way for these people. But on the way there, they had a long stay in the nation of Egypt. And that stay began with the story of a man named Joseph. Um, And that is a story of God's great abundance for Joseph and Joseph's people and Joseph's nation of Egypt. In that story, a vicious famine was headed for the land. But God, in blessing of Joseph, one of his sons, brought the news to Egypt. And while the whole rest of the world was in poverty and in lack, one nation rose up in great power and wealth. It's the nation of Egypt. Nobody else had any food, and Egypt's silos were overflowing with grain and wheat. How did this happen? Joseph and Joseph's God. Everyone in Egypt knew at this time, Joseph and Joseph's God provides. Joseph and Joseph's God brought abundance to us when we were faced with poverty and lack. That was the story of Joseph. For generations, they didn't forget that story. It was tangible before them. The prosperity in the land was because of Joseph and Joseph's God. But this text says what? Then there arose in Egypt a king who did not know Joseph. What's the problem here? The new king, the new pharaoh, didn't know about Joseph or Joseph's story or Joseph's God. And so when he looks out and he sees all of the Hebrew babies being born and more Hebrew babies being born and then more Hebrew babies being born, what grips Pharaoh's heart? Fear. Panic. Here's the verse that sums it up from Exodus. This is what Pharaoh said. Behold, the people of Israel are too many for us. The people of Israel are too many for us. Can everybody feel the fear in this verse, in this reaction to the babies? The king is enjoying a certain level of comfort and safety and power and self-determination and affluence and security, like a good American, right? This Pharaoh, like you and me. And now the presence of babies and babies and babies, and not just babies, but babies from poor families, the wrong side of the tracks, the slaves, working class families. There are too many babies in this kingdom, and it terrifies Pharaoh. It terrifies him. He fears to the point of going manic. 
If you read the story in Exodus, you see that he starts going, oh no, if two more, 10 more, 50 more Hebrew babies are allowed to be born into my kingdom, worst case scenario, worst case scenario, they're gonna join with my enemies, there's not gonna be enough food, they're gonna fight against us, they're gonna take my resources, they're gonna ruin my life, they're gonna destroy my reign, there's no way this kingdom is big enough for these babies. There's no way abundance will remain. There's no way. Fear grips his heart. And where does that fear drive Pharaoh? Here's the next verse. So he dealt shrewdly with our race, and he forced our fathers to expose their infants so they would not be kept alive. The mandate was all the Hebrew baby boys thrown into the Nile. So I need you to feel this. Rather than trust God to bless him and his people, rather than trust God to bless him and his nation, Pharaoh was willing to kill the babies to protect himself and his people. That's what he did. That's what he did. That kind of unbelief and fear is never far when we start trying to hunt out the reasons that we would be driven to not welcome babies, but to minimize them or to abort them. So I've got like 10 examples that I studied. Let me just give you one. Do you know who Margaret Sanger was? Does that name ring a bell? So she was a, a, a eugenicist. Do you know what that means? Someone who wants to purge the race of all the uh, less than worthy people. She was a eugenicist and a racist who started the birth control movement in the United States in the 1940s. Her organization is what now exists as Planned Parenthood. She was obsessed with purging the American population of those who threatened her prosperity and did not fit her profile for what would advance the cause of America. If you want to throw up in your mouth, go home and Google her name and quotes. And I just want to give you a couple. And I want you to feel the fear that drives this. We need more children from the fit and less from the unfit. You feel the fear in there? We can't have needy kids, needy families. The most merciful thing that a large family does to one of its infant members is to kill it. Do you feel the fear in there? I got too many kids already. There's another mouth I will never be able to feed. Let me put it out of its future misery. The aim of our Negro project, it's kind of hard to look back at our country's history, right? So this was their project to push birth control on the black populations in cities that she felt were growing out of control. The aim of our Negro project is to severely reduce or eliminate the reproduction of poorer blacks. That's a quote. Feel the fear in that? One more. It is the representatives, or the babies, of a certain grade of intelligence who will destroy our liberties and are the most far-reaching peril to the future of civilization. 
This woman was terrified of beating. Terrified. It drove her to making it her mission that certain populations in this country would not have babies. Now she lost her battle for birth control to be the means of population control because it was replaced with abortion. You know Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, have you heard her name before? So she confessed this. At the time that Roe was decided, there was a concern about population growth and particularly growth in populations that we don't want to have too many of, end quote. Can you feel it in there? If we don't get rid of these babies, they will cost us our prosperity. Okay, I could give you multiple more examples. I'm not going to do it. But any time that you see a massive move against fruitfulness, children, and babies, it's the same dilemma that Pharaoh faced. Will I have confidence in God to provide or will I not have confidence in God and be afraid that if I don't get rid of the babies, I will have poverty and I will have lack? That's a macro level, but I think hopefully you're making the connection that every woman who has ever conceived a child inside of her runs through the same set of questions in her mind, right? It's the same dilemma. What is this child going to cost me? Will I be able to bring the financial and emotional and spiritual and social energy and resources with me to care for this baby? Will God provide or won't he? The basic question that every woman asks when she conceives a child. It's an especially terrifying question if you are alone or if you are young or if you are unprepared. It's terrifying. So please hear me preaching to you with great compassion and empathy. I get it. It is scary. Fear steps in. And that fear would be overwhelming unless what? Unless God really does love babies. Unless God really does love to provide for and bless nations and fathers and mothers who love babies. If that's true, then this whole game changes. And it is true. And it's exactly what we see in this text. After setting that horrible scene up for us, Stephen's still preaching and he says this. At this time, oh, please feel that in the middle of an infanticide of fear, right in the middle of it, at this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. Beautiful in God's sight there does not mean pretty baby. So you know how some babies are cute and some babies are not cute? Come on, you people are looking like me. You never thought that before. Most babies are cute. Some babies you go, okay, in a year or so, this is going to go well. All right. This doesn't mean that Moses was a cute baby or not a cute baby. 
this means that God's favor was upon this child, that, there was, that, that Moses had a special dispensation of God's grace on him. God was looking at this baby and said, that baby's not dying. I'm going to use that baby to bless my people. That's what that means. And then this. Moses was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, or and, parentheses, when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. Okay, you just have to love this verse of Scripture. You have to love it. If there was any child in the history of the world who should have been killed or aborted, it was Moses. It was Moses. His mother was a Hebrew slave in Egypt. You cannot get lower on the totem pole of life than that. You figure that this baby conceived in this woman's womb would never have any chance but being penniless and hopeless and undereducated and not provided for. What would we have told Moses' mother in our school system, in our city? You have to get rid of this baby. Don't do it to him. Don't bring this baby into this world. But his godly parents refused to abandon Moses. They refused to abandon their son. She hit him right here for three months. I mean, like, right here. He didn't make a sound. No one knew he was there, nursing him and loving on him. And then, you know, after three months, that becomes impossible to do because the lungs get big, and now they're making a racket. And so they prayerfully, purposefully placed this baby boy on the river, not in the river, on the river, in the basket of reeds, and, and choreographed this thing so it's going as close as it can to where some of the rich Egyptian women bathe, and they send little Miriam in the weeds to kind of watch it and see what happens, and they're trusting God to provide for this baby, and what happens? It's one of the more beautifully ironic displays of the power and the sovereignty of God in Scripture. God allows Moses to grow up in Pharaoh's home as his grandson. As rich as you can be. As educated as you can be. And then he sends Moses out and back to bless his people and lead them out of slavery and Egypt. And when Moses leaves Egypt with the people of God, what do they take with them? Wheelbarrows of spoil. The rich and the riches and the wealth of Egypt. In other words, there was no baby boy in this generation who was more blessed of God than Moses. What do we learn from that? All because a mother and a father said, we are not killing this baby. We are not killing this baby. We are trusting that God will bless us. You see the difference between fear and unbelief and faith and trust in God. There it is. Of course, this truth is made most clear for you in whose life? In whose life is this whole truth made most clear for you? It's Jesus. So you know the story surrounding Jesus' birth? It's horrible. It's horrible. 
Pharaoh's genocide of the Hebrew baby boys was just the antitype to King Herod's slaughter of the baby boys at the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. Jesus was born, and wise men come to Pharaoh, and they say, hey, uh, to Herod, the king of the Jews, and they say, hey, where is the new king of the Jews? The baby's been born. Where's the baby? We saw the star. Can somebody take us to the baby? And the same fear that gripped Pharaoh's heart grips Herod's heart. Oh, no. If this baby, baby king, is allowed to live, I'm going to lose my power. I'm going to lose my wealth. I'm going to lose my prosperity. I'm going to lose my throne. I can't let this baby live. I cannot let this baby live. I must kill this baby. And he sends his soldiers to Bethlehem and they slaughter all the baby boys under two years old in Bethlehem. But God had whisked his son away to where? To Egypt. Herod, driven by fear, tries to kill the baby, but God again rescues the baby and out of Egypt again he calls his son. And this baby... Maybe Jesus trumps Moses for the baby most certain to have a miserably horrible, unblessed life. You know Jesus' story, right? He's born, he's conceived in the womb of a teenager who's not married yet, a dirt, poor family whose life is on the run from the get-go. Everyone would have counseled Mary to not have the baby, not have the baby. There's no way there'll be any blessing in this baby's life. But Mary and Joseph say, no way. We are having this baby. And God blesses the world because this couple was willing to receive this child. Who was it that lost out on that blessing? It's King Herod. He allowed unbelief and fear to drive him, and he lost out on the kingdom of God. May that never, ever, ever be the case in the life of our church. Let's just move to one application, because I just want one to sit on you, and I'll put it up here, and we'll talk about it. Here's what I'd love you to take from this text and these stories. Other than a grieving heart, it's okay. Your heart should grieve over some of this. Believe the gospel and move toward babies. Believe the gospel and move toward babies. Okay, when I say believe the gospel, here's what I mean. I need you to believe, if you have never before, that God is all-satisfying and all-powerful and all-good, all-good. And that he is able not only to save our souls and forgive us of our sin and usher us into the kingdom of his son, but like we read before, he is able to provide for all of our needs according to his riches in glory. That's the good news of the gospel. If God did not spare his own son but sent him for you to die for you that you might live in him, will he not also grant you all things? I mean, be a people who are convinced that when you stand with babies, God stands there with you, ready 
to bless. And so let's become a people and a church who moves toward the little ones. Now this is going to mean a ton of compassion and empathy and a very steep cost to us. This is not just theory about something that happened in Egypt and Bethlehem and the 40s in the United States of America. Have you ever sat with a 17-year-old girl who just found out that she's pregnant? Because I've been there, and that's terrifying. Fear. Have you ever sat with a couple who had three children already and a razor-thin margin in their finances and found out that mom was now pregnant or pregnant with twins? That is terrifying. Have you ever sat with a couple who halfway through what seemed like a perfectly normal pregnancy found out that their baby had Down syndrome? I've been there. That is terrifying. Fear is going to rush in in all these cases and more. But those circumstances don't scare the living God. They don't scare him. So we want to become the people who have the courage to say, I'm terrified right now, but God loves babies. Life begins at conception. He loves all babies, even ones who don't fit the profile, even ones who are not expected by us. They're expected by him. And he will be with this baby. He will bless us. I trust him. I know what he's like. That's what faith looks like. And that faith needs to come out of our hands in service and love. Now, I know you're doing this already, and I love you for it. I love you for it. Last week, we had somebody visiting. She didn't bring her baby because she was afraid, if I bring my baby, they're going to make noise at the church service, and we're going to get yelled at. Then all of a sudden, all she heard was cooing and cawing and... That is a diaper. I know that smell. And she was like, I can come back and I can bring my baby. Thank you. May simple, tangible signs of our commitment to children like that be the light of Jesus to this world. Okay, some of you, this is not going to be a a, a sermon in theory. Okay? Some of you will sin sexually and get pregnant when you weren't expecting it, and fear will grip your soul. May God keep us from that. Some of you will have two kids and not have been thinking the third was coming and fear will grip your soul. Some of you will have children who get pregnant out of wedlock and fear will grip your soul and their soul. Some of you will have diagnosis of children that you are carrying, that your wife is carrying, that that baby has Down syndrome or some other very serious illness with them and fear will grip your soul. On that day, I want the grace of Jesus Christ, the goodness of Jesus Christ, the power of Jesus Christ to drive fear out of your soul and for you to stand with God and say, we're going to welcome this baby. We're going to trust him. I don't know how it's going to work, but Moses shouldn't have been here and look what God did with him and Jesus shouldn't have been here and look what God did with him. We're going to welcome this baby. May God give us the grace to be a church that's like that. I'm going to pray now, and these are not wasted words like to end the sermon. If God's grace doesn't come 
uh, we will never embrace these words to be true. And so I'm going to ask him to come and to do that. Will you also pray with me that God will raise up uh, some baby in the United States of America who should have been aborted to just end abortion? Um, to just be a Moses or a, or a Jesus for us? I mean, why not ask him for that grace, right? It's what he loves to do. Right in the middle of this to say, see that? I'm going to do something beautiful right there. Let's pray. Jesus, we don't want babies. Maybe we want one. But we want our comfort and our, our security and our prosperity and our, our wealth. And babies scare us. They're so needy and they're so dependent. If we're women, they wreck our bodies. There's such a high cost. But you love babies. So I pray that at least one church in this city, and I pray for hundreds of others, would just get their hearts set on fire for life, for sons and for daughters. Father, you know the circumstances of our life before we get there. When we do get to places where receiving a child would be very, very difficult, I pray that we would bring you glory by believing the gospel to be true and welcoming those kids. Father, I pray that there is some teenage girl or 22-year-old man in this country who by all rights should have been aborted. I pray that you would visit that, that man or that woman and in your grace, you would raise them up to become a leader who would shake us from our slumber over these things. Father, I pray for our cities, our schools in our cities that are filled with children who are in poverty. And I pray that their families and their teachers and their pastors would be set on fire for God and would have such confidence and trust in you and live such holy, blessable lives that the blessings of God would rain down on them. Would you forgive us for our selfishness and our fear? Would you cause us to see Jesus Christ for who he is in all of his glory? Father, these are hard words, and I pray that this week even we would wrestle on them and that your spirit would be gracious to have them make sense to us in new ways. I pray that you would get us to a place where we are taking hold of you and all that you have for us. So hear my prayer and answer. Amen. Thank you for giving me the time to work through that with you. It's no surprise that in his grace, the God who provides gave us a sacrament of what? Bread and cup. Jesus invites us week after week to his table. Among the million things that should be running through your head and your heart when we come down to this table is what? Jesus provides. Jesus provides. Jesus will feed me. Jesus will clothe me. Jesus provides. So as you take the bread and the cup this week, would you be believing that to be true in every facet of your life and rejoicing in the strength and the power and the grace of God to do this for you? Uh, if you know Jesus and you love him and he has just wrecked your old life and given you new life, in his name, 
and become the Lord and the Savior of your life and, and, and the sweetest name that you know. Come down to this table with us. Feast on Christ. Receive his grace. And then we just get to lift our voices in song, celebrating the grace of God together. So let's do that. You can stand and come down the middle.